And our topics are a very wide variety You can always check us out at DonnaMantis.com We don't mean to brag, but we've been told it's the You can also follow us on Twitter, at DonnaMantis Listen to the podcast on Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud Or wherever you get your podcasts Gary Ziegler, Stranded in Time, is the Time Twist. Hey, Reginald, how's it going up there, bruv? I'm cold, but I'm good. What the devil are you doing up here? Oh... I just wanted to get a better look. It's beautiful up here. Look at all these stars. Well, you can't be up here. I've got an important job to do. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, if you don't mind me just hanging out for a minute. I have to I have to do my job. Get out of here. Okay, but here, check this out. Look what I brought with me. What in the devil is that glass box mechanism? This here is called an iPhone. I, iPhone? Yeah, everybody's got them where I come from. Uh, what what does it do? Well, look, I got this game called Bubble Guppies. Bubble Guppies. Yeah, here, look, check it out. Mm-hmm. So, tell me, tell me more about well, this. You, you just tap on this fish and you make them bite that bubble. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, this see, is fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, oh. oh, hey, well, I don't know if you're well, supposed how, to be how? looking for this, but uh, there's a big old chunk of ice right ahead. Oh, oh, oh no, oh, it's an iceberg. Well, I don't see what the big deal is. It's just frozen water. You fool! You've ruined me! I I predict this iPhone to ruin society. Well, you're not wrong. Is Gary on the time phone? Yeah, no, I'm I'm still here. No, we are taking on water. What's that? Oh, watertight bulkheads breached? What, thousands of lives lost? And this didn't happen before? Not enough lifeboats? Gee willikers! Ever since the Earth has circled the sun, there have been fantastic tales of wonder and mystery that the faint of heart dare not discuss. But two brave, uninformed souls have the brass to tackle every extraordinary happenstance from the modern age to the dawn of Mantis. Welcome to Donna Mantis. You can find us online at www.donnamantis.com. Also, you can find us on Twitter at Donna Mantis. Joey, what's going on tonight? You're welcome for that accurate reenactment of what actually caused the Titanic. To yeah, sink. an iPhone. An iPhone. Bubble guppies. <laughs> Is that even? I think, I that's think a it kid's was bubble cartoon. guppies too. Yeah, that I, was it. it might be. I don't even know. I don't it know. actually sounds like it is. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, that's yeah, it's crazy. I never knew all that. I never. Uh, I don't know. So much of our history is hidden from us. I, I'm afraid, uh, by uh, by big government and uh, the media. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Uh, so. Uh, kind of a special episode tonight. One more throwback. This is three of three throwback episodes. Yep, yep, we're yep. on vacation, vacation, and we're actually throwing out some old episodes that are from the vault that aren't available yet, but this one is now available. Uh, Joe, this one's a dark one. 
This is a very dark one. This is the one, this was the 12th out of 12 episodes of Where on Earth Is. And after this one, we looked at each other and said, let's do something different. <laughs> let's not have every <laughs> one that we do in, I mean, they never had a happy ending. Like, no. they were found, like, we, we didn't do those for some reason. <laughs> we no. We didn't want one that had a happy ending. No. Uh, and, you know, yeah. ironically enough, we already had the idea to do the Titanic skit. Well, that was in 1912. Yeah. This story took also took place in 1912. Yeah, and that was by coincidence. It's crazy. It was yeah. like, when was that, Velisca? Oh, 1912. Titanic. I was thinking 1910 at first. Joey's like, no, I think that was 1912 as well. So yeah. I looked it up and told, it totally was. So that's crazy. The only separated, like the Titanic sank in April and this happened in June. Yeah. So yeah. just a few months apart, That's man. crazy. So very fitting. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this this was recorded uh, a couple years ago, you know, uh, so forgive. I, I haven't listened to it since then. Have you? Uh, some of it. Okay. Some of it. Well, if there's any, like, sound quality that's not as good or if we're just not as good, uh, you know, forgive us. This was a while back. We've done it a few you know, we've done it about 70 times since then. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, we hope you still enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't consider myself to be part of woke culture. Maybe, maybe some, maybe a little bit in some cases, but, uh, there were some people that thought it'd be funny to, uh, I found this later after this episode, thought it'd be funny to lay on the lawn and take like a picture of them and all their friends laying on the lawn. Like they were slaughtered yeah um yeah that didn't sit nicely with me considering what happened in this episode so there's your little <laughs> spoiler going into this uh see what you think about people laying on the lawn of this house uh acting like they were dead and see if see if uh after you listen to this episode see if that makes you warm and fuzzy on the inside what reminds me what what you just said reminds me of we had a friend a long time ago that had a shirt that said titanic swim team 1912 yeah yeah and I, mean, I, I have the Bundy Dahmer 2020 T-shirt too, I mean, so maybe I, I can't say anything. It's just, it's just, <laughs> just something about I don't know. I guess this case uh, hit me. You know, it was super dark. It was well written, so that's why it hit me really hard. Oh, thanks, man. And uh, just a bunch of punks. You know, I, I don't the T-shirts. I don't mind as much. It's just like the selfie for social media. Oh yeah, yeah. I just didn't like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm with you, brother. It's called a deathy. <laughs> no, I so i started a new hashtag deathy hashtag deathy yeah can only do picture it picture with grandma oh. smile grandma oh, oh okay that's already set okay oh. click hey yeah. that was kind of started back in the victorian age oh yeah everyone yeah, took pictures yeah. of their dead oh relatives. yeah had a uh like a like a whatever full of them where you could just flip through them yeah Isn't that's crazy bizarre? they would yeah. they would like pose them up and set them sit next to the live relatives and yeah very strange yeah, yeah that is very strange yeah. well i mean yeah, that's their time, I guess. And this was right after the Victorian area. Yeah, area, yeah, it's area. crazy. Era. Yeah, area. Yeah, Victorian area. Er. So okay. yeah, yep. There you go. Okay. Well, enjoy uh, this number seventy-one, Velisca Axe Murders. Enjoy the Axe Murder episode, please. <laughs> please enjoy it. Get some. Get set with a glass of lemonade on your porch and 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 reminisce. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Bye. On a midsummer evening in June of 1912, after attending a church function, the members of the Moore family, along with two friends, returned to their stately home to relax, have a snack, and go to bed. Little did they know when they closed their eyes to sleep that night, they would never open them again. 
The grisly scene that was discovered the next morning horrified the townsfolk, and later the entire country, and gave birth to a mystery that endures to this day. So tonight, we too will ask the question, where on earth is the Velisca Axe Murderer? Welcome back, everybody, to the 12th episode of Where on Earth Is. 12th and sort of final? Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert. We'll talk to you about that later. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and like I said in our last podcast, I heard somewhere that in the podcast universe, 12 episodes is generally considered a season. So we can we can, we can call this the end yep. of season one of yep. Where on Earth season Is. Season one. Okay. Season right. one finale. This is a good this is a good finale. It really is. Yeah. And so I want to do a little uh, warning. I don't think in any previous episode we have gotten really into the details of any murder or any gruesome uh, details as far as that is concerned. Well, we've been fairly light with everything. We have. I think so. Yeah. Uh, that will change today. So okay. <laughs> I just, you know, I have to just not intended for younger viewers or exactly. listeners. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? What was the voice? Oh yeah, viewer discretion is advised. Oh yeah, he yeah. always said it like he had a yeah. secret. Yeah, viewer discretion is advised. I like that guy's voice. Yeah, it, I, it was uh, NYPD Blue. I always yeah. remember that. That's and when you were a kid, you were like, I'm watching this show. <laughs> you know, yeah. it almost did the opposite. I'm sure you could do some kind of study. Oh yeah, and it probably did the opposite for a lot of kids if they're like, now I'm paying attention. Oh yeah, it's just like when you're you can be speaking at a normal volume for an hour, but the minute that you're like, oh, and by the way, Bobby, did you hear? And your kids like, huh? They like come right in there as soon as your voice goes down. So when you're 12 and you're watching HBO and it's like the following program has partial nudity. <laughs> yeah. NYPD Blue. That's I'm telling you. When I was that was uh, like there was the rumor. Of course, oh my God! Remember Dennis Franz? Oh yeah, it showed Dennis yeah. Franz nude. Oh, for it, the love of God! I feel like that's a cruel joke. You're yeah. like partial nudity. Yes, I'm watching this one. It was him. Yeah. Oh no, no kidding. I don't know who who I would like to have been at that roundtable meeting. Where they were like, well, we have this gal, we have this guy. What was the guy's name? Dennis, you want to show some skin on yeah. this one? Uh, or we have the portly 380-pound fellow, Dennis yeah. Franz. Yeah. Anyway. That's, that's So awesome. already, yeah. I have no idea what that has to do with, with what we're talking about a right lot, now. A lot. You but guys figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah, if you were paying attention during the introduction, uh, this is going to be uh, darker. We're gonna we're gonna finish out this this season with a darker, uh, a little bit of a darker vibe. So uh, first off, let's talk about our let's talk about tonight's victims, the Moore family. I'm sorry. Oh my goodness. In 19, <laughs> it's 1912 in Villisca. Okay, so Villisca is a bustling railroad town in the southwestern part of Iowa. Although it currently has a population of around 1,300, back in 1912, it was double that, and the town's train depot played host to no less than two dozen trains per day. Villisca was also home to several hotels, restaurants, theaters, and businesses. One of these businesses was a John Deere franchise named the Moore Implement Company, owned by Joe Moore, uh, Josiah B. Moore, so he was also known as Joe or J.B., 
The Moors were a successful, affluent family, members of the local Presbyterian church, and were well-liked and respected within the community. Uh, the family consisted of 43-year-old Josiah B., who uh, also was known as Joe or JB, as I just said. His wife, Sarah, who was 39, Joe was 43. And uh, their four children, Herman, age 11, Mary Catherine, age 10, Arthur Boyd, age 7, and finally, five-year-old Paul. That's my. That's the cat. The cat opened the door. I thought that was an axe murder. <laughs> I was already in. I was already in the the mood. You know, I was like, ah, no. The door just creaks open. How ironic! Was I that swear be? to God, it was latched too. I know, and it was like kind of like someone was trying to sneak in, like open it slowly so we wouldn't notice. Yeah, I didn't hear it because my gums were flapping. But I lo- I noticed you were staring at the door, like, okay, what's going on there? Two men die in an axe murder. <laughs> While doing an ex-murder podcast. I don't just, she doesn't even have opposable thumbs. How did she do that? Uh, that was crazy. I'm fairly sure it was latched. All right. Uh, I think I was at Mary Catherine, age 10, Arthur Boyd, age 7, and finally, five-year-old Paul. Uh, so let's talk about the last evening for the Moore family. Uh, it was <laughs> June 9th, 1912. On what would be their final evening on this earth, the Moore family attended a Children's Day service at the Presbyterian Church where they were all members. The Children's Day service was an annual event in which the kids would quote scriptures, give speeches, and sing for the congregation. Sarah Moore was co-director of the event, and her children were among those who participated. Uh, now, did you go to church much as a kid? A lot, yes. Okay, me too. I, I mm-hmm. didn't have a choice, and I went uh, Yeah. every time the doors were open, twice on Sunday, and then once on Wednesday oh, night. We, we were just... <clears throat> Mainly Sunday night goers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And no. sometimes on Wednesday when they had like special singings and things like that. Right. Well, yeah. for us, Wednesday night was the CPs, which was the Christian Pathlighters. Oh, yeah. Which, well, yeah, which is kind of like a Christian version of the Boy Scouts. Oh, that's we lear- cool. We learned to tie knots and, and how to part our hair, our hair properly. And. <laughs> Yeah, um, we'll just leave that right there. But getting to this Children's Day, this reminds me of something that would go on, and I still see it every once in a while, like on Easter or whenever. I'll go to to my parents' church now, and they have the Children's Church, and it's where basically they march the kids up in front of the congregation and enforce that. You could tell that 99% of the kids would literally rather be getting a root canal. Oh, yeah. Just the the desolate looks on their faces. But, you know, as they half-heartedly halfway lip sync to the, you know, love lifted me or whatever song that they're playing and they're just standing there and I feel so bad for them. But this, that's how I imagine this went. Well, so (laughs) one of, and this is a little off topic, but one of my memories of church is we had a special guest that came to talk to the youth about music. And uh, I think I've told you the story before, but um, he said, let me play a couple songs that, that, you know, you shouldn't be listening to that. You shouldn't be listening to. And he played a, a Huey Lewis and the news song. And I, I guess I'd never heard it. And, uh, I went home and I called the radio station and I requested the song and I sat with my tape player. I remember ready to that. record. I remember doing that. And then hit the record button, uh, the record button step by step. <laughs> one by one. Okay. I, for, for some reason I I thought it's the power of love. No, I've heard, I heard that a million times cause okay. it's back to the future. Yeah. But, uh, so I remember like listening to that song, like all summer, it's like, 
Mission not accomplished. Didn't you hate it when they would play a commercial overlapping the beginning of the song? Oh, yeah, the guy keeps talking. Yeah, or he won't shut up. Your yeah. hits from 70s, 80s, it's like, today. hey, you jerk, I'm trying to record yeah. this for free. Yeah. Now and- i got to listen to you every time I listen to this track. <laughs> no, but no, yeah, it, it was it was perfect. So thanks to that guy. Yeah, thank you very much. It's now, a great I, song. Bob, Bob Robertson. I don't know entire, what it means. It's a great song, though. Me neither, but you know. Let's not let's not overthink our music, right? No. So yeah. So now that our thoughts on children's church, <laughs> uh, after the event was over, the family mingled and visited until around nine thirty that evening, when they finally decided to call it a night and walk the three blocks back to their home. Uh, the Moore home was a stately house that had been built in eighteen sixty eight. And they had purchased it and had been living there since about 1903. Now, accompanying them, accompanying them rather, uh, were two family friends who had asked to stay the night that night. 12-year-old Lena Stillinger and her 7-year-old sister Ina May. So Lena and Ina. After returning home, the family and friends continued to visit for just a little while, enjoyed some milk and cookies, and then uh, got themselves ready for bed around 10.30 to 11 o'clock. Sister Lena and Ina crawled into bed in the home's downstairs bedroom while the four more children went to their respective bedrooms upstairs. Joe and Sarah kissed their kids goodnight before retiring to their own room, which was also upstairs. The house, bustling with activity and laughter just a few minutes before, grew silent as its occupants fell asleep one by one. You really had to paint it that way, didn't you? That's exactly, yeah. I'm like, you sick, heartless best. Yeah. I just kind of wanted to... No, set the yeah, mood you did because that's did. what happened i mean it was just any other night and that's all for episode 12 <laughs> we'll catch you next time so let's get into the murders, shall uh, we yeah let's let's go not long after the occupants of the moore home fell asleep that night an intruder entered the house and i'm going to mention here that one theory claims the assailant entered the house earlier in the evening while the family was away at church while another has him quietly slipping in the back door as the family slept that night. Now, they found two cigarette butts later up in the attic uh, that that spurred the first theory. They thought he came in while they were at church, hid in the attic, I guess had a few cigarettes waiting for them to come home. Um, but how do, you, how do you tell how long a cigarette butt's in an attic? See, that's, yeah. So basically, I just wanted to mention it. But I mean, maybe some, some really religious family that doesn't smoke, but, True. you know, a 10-year-old boy could sneak a cigarette up to that yeah and you never know yeah so it was either that or you know maybe two years prior they hired someone to put extra insulation up there yeah so to me i don't put much into that true either way though whether intriguing intriguing to say that yeah and and i i don't want to bore people with extra details but if i even if even if i think it's a silly theory or something if it's out there i do want to No. yeah yeah so either way, I, under, I understand that. Yeah. So w- whether he was there already waiting or whether he slipped in, uh, the, the 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 events from that point on are as follows. And co- according to investigators, shortly after midnight, <clears throat> the killer is in the house wielding an axe that belonged to Joe, which he had taken from a shed out back. He retrieved an oil lamp from the dresser removed the glass chimney and bent the wick, most likely to minimize the flame, and then he placed it under a chair. He lit the wick and turned it down as much as possible without the flame going out, casting a dim shimmer of light in the silent house. Axe in hand, the killer then quietly passed the door of the first floor bedroom where the Stillinger girls were sleeping, and he crept upstairs. The first bedroom entered was Joe and Sarah's. 
<clears throat> Using the flat back of the axe, he delivered one swift and massive blow to the back of Joe Moore's head, completely crushing it and more than likely killing him instantly. Then, before Sarah could wake up or realize what was going on, he slipped around to the other side of the bed and gave her the same treatment. Once the Moore parents were dead, he crossed the hall and turned his attention to the children. One by one, he brought the axe down. Within minutes, all six members of the Moore family had been slain. After this, the killer made his way back down the stairway, the bloody axe dripping at his side, and entered the downstairs bedroom. With a massive swing, he crushed the head of little seven-year-old Ina, which must have startled older sister Ina out of her slumber. Lena is the only victim believed to have been awake when she was murdered that night. She was found lying across the bed, not in a sleeping fashion, and a large gash on her forearm suggested that she had attempted to defend herself. She was also found with her nightgown pulled up, leaving herself exposed, but upon further examination, it is not believed that she had been assaulted in any sexual manner. So I'm going to plow through the really serious and dark parts here so we can try to find another uh, point where we can find something to laugh about, but uh, it may be a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that those are, and like I said, those are some gruesome details, but that's what happened. Um, so now only a couple hours after arriving home from a church social on what I'm sure they thought was just another typical Iowa summer evening, all eight of them lay slaughtered in their beds. This scene alone would have been gruesome enough to make headlines, <clears throat> but unfortunately the killer was just getting started. Satisfied that everyone was dead, he set about the second part of his plan. The killer made his way back upstairs into the bedroom of the elder Moors. He proceeded to hack at their face and heads with the axe until they were barely more than mush from the neck up, raising and swinging the axe so frantically that it gouged holes in the ceiling above him. He struck each body at least 30 times. Sweating and out of breath from his efforts, he then gathered up the surrounding bedsheets and covered the faces of Joe and Sarah's corpses. He then made his way into the Moors' children's bedrooms, and administered the same treatment. After reducing their heads to pulp, he covered them with clothing he found in their dressers. He then returned to the Stillinger sisters and administered the same ghastly post-mortem mutilation to them as well. Once the grisliest portion of the crime was over, the killer began a bizarre ritual, making his way around the house, closing curtains, covering windows, and even mirrors with clothing and fabric. In fact, he covered every single piece of glass in the entire house, even the small glass windows at the entryway. He also, for reasons still unknown, took a two-pound slab of uncooked bacon from the icebox, wrapped it in a towel, and placed it on the floor of the downstairs bedroom. A part of a keychain that reportedly did not belong to the Moors was also found in this area. He also left an uneaten plate of food and a bowl of water in the kitchen. <clears throat> Red swirls in the water indicated that he made an attempt to clean his hands at some point. It is theorized that he spent several hours in the home taking his time. Sometime before 5 a.m., he placed the lantern at the top of the stairs and made a feeble attempt to wipe the blood from the axe before leaving it next to the Stillinger sisters' battered corpses. He then grabbed a set of keys to the house and slipped out the door, locking it behind him. He disappeared into the night, leaving one of the most ghastly murder scenes in Iowa's history and one of its most enduring mysteries behind him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like we need to take a breather or something after that. I, when I was writing that, I didn't realize exactly how dark it was. Well, the only thing that I can really um, 
the thing that I can talk about right now is I just watched, um, I'd always wanted to watch it, but I just, it's one of those movies you weren't avoiding, but you just didn't have a chance. I watched the sequel, but really the prequel to Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon. Oh, yeah. And and just because it's fresh on my mind with the mirrors and things like that, there were similar elements. So I wonder if it inspired the the screenwriter or screenplay or That's whatever so cool. to... Um, the mirrors, the mirror parts. Yeah, did what, busted, he busted all the mirrors. Oh yeah, see, it's house. been years since I yeah, watched that. Yeah, and uh, and was that the guy uh, Fine? What was his name? Edward Fine or something? Fine. I can't remember his name. Um, and he has like he's got the whole body dragon tattoo. And remember, yeah, the, the yeah, scene where that's the, that's correct. Philip Seymour Hoffman is like sitting in the. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's coming to no, me. No, no, no. I need to narrate yeah. it. But that was a similar thing. So I wonder. You know, you'd you'd need somebody that's that's you know some kind of a psychologist that would know this better than us. But so, is there something to like he he's so and and I'm probably not going to hit this on the head, you know, the nail on the head here. But is he so ashamed of himself that he doesn't want to see his own reflection? That's what that's what they kind of played played off in Red Dragon. Okay, okay. So I mean, that's I'll just leave that there. That's a good point. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, but I, I will say, um, I mean, the only retaliation I can get on this guy is um, the part where they where he mutilated the corpses. I mean, they're dead, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you killed them, you did the worst thing. Right. Um, the <clears throat> fact that you did all that just um, to me, you just want to meet the guy and be like. Yeah, killing them was the worst thing, and this other stuff was just uh, idiotic and insane, and it doesn't matter really. Um, so, right, congratulations. And to me, it just points to more of a motive because that's rage. Yeah, like that's rage. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's funny that you said that. That, but yeah, you, but almost you don't have to retaliate against something like uh, someone like that because more than likely, um, you know, you and I can find happiness. I mean, we can sit on the back porch and pick guitars and laugh for hours and hours and, and we can find happiness in our kids and our jobs and our life. But that person's probably never really been happy. And especially after that, he was never happy after, after that. So, um, life is about happiness. So yeah, chances are, you know, he was probably never happy. Uh, the discovery. So the citizens of Villisca, Iowa, didn't know it, but in just a few short hours, their community and their sense of security would be shattered. The first to notice something wasn't right was the Moore's elderly neighbor, uh, Mary Peckham, who lived just to the west of them. Uh, That morning, June 10th, 1912, at around 7.30, she had come outside and found it odd that the usually bustling Moore home seemed deserted and quiet. She knocked on the door several times, and when there was no answer, she tried to open it. The door was locked. She then let the Morse chickens out and made her way back to her home where she telephoned Joe's brother, Ross, who worked at a local pharmacy, and told him she was concerned that something might be amiss at his brother's house. Ross made his way to the home and arrived there at about 8 a.m. to check it out. Mary met Ross in the yard, and they ascended the stairs, and Ross banged loudly on the door and yelled to try to raise someone. When no one answered, he used a copy of the house key to open the door. While Mary waited on the porch... Ross entered the home and began to search the first floor. He all, almost immediately came rushing back out, white as a ghost, and rushed next door to call Joe's hardware store, 
when uh, employee Ed Selly or Seely answered, Ross frantically told him to fetch Hank Horton, the marshal, because I quote, something terrible had happened. Uh, Horton arrived shortly after the call. <clears throat> and this is where no one will ever know who did this because of what's about to happen. I don't know if this was the case with all crime scenes in the early 1900s, but I'll just, I'll just get into it. And, and, and you will shortly know why any shred of evidence that may have been left would have just been compromised. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Horton arrived shortly after the call around eight thirty AM to inspect the scene along the way. He gathered two doctors, J Clark Cooper and Edgar Hoff, uh, along with Wesley Ewing, the minister of the Presbyterian Church and the Moor, uh, that the Moors attended. Directly behind them came the county coroner, L.A. Linquist, and a third doctor, F.S. Williams. So including Brother Ross and neighbor Mary, we now have eight people at the scene. Word of the tragedy had already spread throughout the town, and a large group of curious rubberneckers gathered in the front yard as Dr. Williams made his way inside to inspect the bodies and issue an estimated time of death. When the visually shaken doctor re-emerged, he made his way over to the growing crowd and warned, and I quote, Don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it to the last day of your life. Unfortunately... Most of the people ignored his advice. About a hundred townsfolk and curious neighbors trampled through the house, mixing fingerprints, scattering evidence, and basically rendering the crime scene completely useless to investigators. One per get this. One person even made off with a few fragments of Joe Moore's skull as souvenirs. What? It that yeah, I was it wasn't until noon when the <laughs> National Guard arrived that the scene had was, was properly cordoned off. What on earth? So they, and I even had the guy's name, but I didn't write it down because I didn't, I just didn't see the point. But he admitted it. Like he's, yeah, I, he grabbed some fractured portions of Joe Moore's, picked them up. Yeah. And put them in his pocket and <laughs> walked out of the house. I mean, I get like people who were at the Berlin Wall when it was being smashed, grabbing pieces because yeah. that's his story, but not, you know, someone's he put it. He put it right next to his Joe DiMaggio baseball. <laughs> Here's my souvenir shelf, yeah? It's all of my neat stuff. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, uh, he, well, that's, I don't know. So this is a side note, too, and sometimes I don't want to go down a different route or, or confuse the story, but I'll find things that, I just can't omit at 2:10 a.m. on the night of the murder, a telephone operator named Xenia Delaney heard strange footsteps approaching up the stairs of her home, after which she heard someone trying to open her locked door. After a few attempts, the footsteps faded away in the same direction as they had come. Now, what does that have to do with this? No idea. Where where but does she live in relation? I couldn't find it. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Uh, and I and I had to go down a deep rabbit hole to even find that. Oh, uh, okay. So, and like, you know, I, someone may be at home listening, going like, who cares? But I just wanted to add it. You never know. Yeah. If you don't bring it up, it can never, you know, if, if there is a I mean, if, if, if she came to a police department and she had that story, they would, they would write it down. Yeah. And it would be in the, in the, um, evidence i mean they said that uh, a few years ago that they opened up all of the uh, jfk evidence for anyone i guess not all of it but 
all of all of what's public mm-hmm. and it's a it's it's a huge room with a whole bunch of shelves and so I mean they take they take notes on everything. Yeah, wasn't that the stipulation was it had to be so many years after mm-hmm. he died? Yeah, basically. I so, think so. Anyone yeah. who'd be held accountable would, was died was dead already. Yeah, or? yeah. And after Lyndon B. Johnson was dead, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my dad to his dying day said that LBJ did it. Yeah, he really. Oh, did. Yeah, I've always heard that. <laughs> uh, so. The citizens of Villisca were understandably horrified and shaken by the news of a mass murder right in their own town. As the sun began to set that day, fear began to set in that somewhere in town a bloody madman could be hiding away, ready to emerge again under the cover of darkness. Despite it being much more likely that the killer had boarded one of the dozens of trains uh, roaring in and out of Villisca each day and made good his escape, panic still set in. Neighborhoods and townsfolk quickly assembled watch groups. Armed guards stood outside most houses. Doors were dead bolted and windows were nailed shut. A number of posses on horseback were cobbled together and searched every nook and cranny in the town. Within days, rumors and accusations were rampant. Everyone was looking at each other with suspicion. Every lock in every store in town was sold out. The streets were flooded with private detectives, law enforcement from neighboring counties who had brought along bloodhounds, citizens openly carrying weapons, and newspaper reporters at every corner. It was total chaos. Wow. And I can I can see that. I can understand that. Uh, yeah, definitely. Because this, this, this had to have been one of the most gruesome crimes in the not just the state of Iowa, but probably in United States history, right? Yeah, and even though I discredited what he did afterwards, I mean, it definitely... I mean, maybe his payoff is that will instill fear um, into people's hearts, and and maybe that's what a, a person like that thinks he needs. True. Yeah. Um, Dennis Rader got off on the you know terrorizing and and just the fear, knowing that you know everybody in Wichita, Kansas, where he was operating, mm-hmm. uh, he he got off on watching the news. Um, Gary Ridgway too, the Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. They said he never missed the ten o'clock news yeah. while he was at large. Yeah. He loved to see the the city in fear. So you know, when I was a kid, I was always afraid of uh, of uh, well, a lot of things, but I don't ever remember being afraid of like a serial killer kind of like that. So I I wouldn't. I wonder what it would be like to live in one of these towns and be a kid. That had to be rough. Yeah, yeah. You know what we. Jessica was living in Wichita mm-hmm. uh, while while Dennis Rader was still at large. Yeah. So what has she said anything? We've about- talked about. Well, she said that her mom had just mentioned it before. Uh, see, but with with Rader, it was weird because he would be active and then he would drop off the radar for ten, five, yeah, four or five, ten, yeah. twelve years, and you know how quickly people forget. That's right. So while while the murders were fresh, uh, one of his key moves was to cut the phone line before he would go in and people would actually like if before they left work or left the bar or left wherever to go home, they would call their phone from wherever they were to see if there was a, it would ring. Wow. People were so yeah. paranoid in the city. You wow. Know? Yeah. Um, well, when I was a kid, one time we had, uh, my sisters were home with me when we, when I was small, I have two older sisters. And, uh, one night the phone light was cut was the phone line was cut there. It was it was going against next next to the house, and you could see where you could see where a knife cut it. Oh wow! Yeah, but we had two phone lines. We had one that was like for the um, like company phone, and one that was like personal. Yeah, and they and one of them still worked. 
That is creepy. Because I guess, I don't know why they didn't run together. I don't know. They went to different parts of the house or whatever. Did you find anything else weird, like a cut? Well, no, they heard noise and stuff outside and dogs barking and things. Oh, okay. Okay. So um, we had a lot of like prowlers and things like that when I was a kid. Um, There was one time my sisters looked outside and there was a guy standing in the backyard and there's like the dogs were jumping on him. And he was just like standing there. And I always think of the Mike Myers thing late, you know, that I saw later. Um, just kind of, she said he's standing there motion, motionless and the dogs were jumping on him barking. You've told me that, but and that she ran creepy. from my, her room to my dad's room and, and he looked and it was gone. So Man, that's, that's, that's something crazy. I'll never forget. And well, I, I didn't see it, but I just remember growing up. That's, that was what we always said. Um, by the way, Mike Myers, the serial killer, not Austin Powers. Yeah, no, you didn't no. see Austin Powers standing <laughs> no, there. Was, was, <laughs> no, he was, da, 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 let me da, in baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, it, it's almost like, uh, I know it's supposed to be worse it's now. Michael, sorry. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know why I said Mike. <laughs> well, you're casual with him. You know him a little We're more. buddies. He came he, to your house. He was in my front, he was in my backyard. <laughs> you're going to call him Mike. Sorry, I, I just didn't want to let that go. I was like, why did I call him Mike? But I, everything's supposed to be worse now, right? But yes. like you said, I remember more instances like that when I was younger. My mom, when she was on her way to work, was actually ran off the road by uh, two guys in a car and it was real early and it was, she was anyway, they ran her off the road and it was on a bridge and they pinned her car in and one was coming around and trying to open her car door. And the other one had like a thermos with coffee and he threw that on her windshield. And I'm guessing maybe to not to impair her vision or something. And uh, we had this big white, like 68 Impala and she just put it in drive and hammered it. And even like sideswiped a little bit. Yeah, that's wow. And it was after that that, that she bought a little thirty eight snub nose pistol and, yeah. and carried it to work back and forth. What? That's um, crazy. When I was a kid, and this is, we may talk about this at some point. Sure. Um, more in depth, but we lived kind of in the middle of nowhere, and we were we were in Arkansas, and. I, first off, I was raised by my grandparents, but sometimes looking back. I'd, uh, sometimes I wonder if they like wanted me to uh, disappear <laughs> or maybe look, maybe they just had really, maybe they just trusted everybody because I remember one time we were coming back from my aunt and uncle's house, me and my dad. And I had, and I'm, we were, we were living in Cincinnati. So I was eight or younger. Okay. And I said, Hey, I want to ride my bike the rest of the way home. And he just stopped and was like, go ahead. I got my bike out. We were like four miles from our house. I didn't know that. But he just drove the hell off. Well, maybe maybe he didn't know it was quite that far. You know, in a car, you don't really think about distances being that far. I don't know. I mean, for him, it's just like a few minutes. And I, look, I know I love the man, and I know he loved me. But he drove away. And I remember riding my bike for what felt like. And maybe looking, you know, maybe I, I'm not remembering it right, and it wasn't that far. But I'm telling you right now. It felt like it took me half the day to get home. And the man didn't come back and check on me. It was just like, I remember stopping and resting in the ditch and crying a little bit. Like, God, where am I at? I think we could build a whole sitcom around a kid that lives with their, their grandparents and, and they want them to like disappear. No, it would never fly now. It but, might fly back in the eighties. And this, yeah, this was, this was the mid eighties <laughs> where I could get up on a Saturday morning, jump on my bike and I could not come home till yeah, dark. I did the same thing. Right. So, you know, yeah. I, it was just such a different time, but yeah. my, my, what my story is, uh, it was during the summer and mom was gone and dad was gone 
and I'm by myself at the house. So I'm eight or less. And this guy rides up in our yard on a four wheeler. And I knew him. He was an older boy that rode our school bus. Right. And he was like, you want to, you want to ride on the four wheeler with me? And I was just like, okay. So I get on the four wheeler with him and we drive about a mile down the road. And then he just stops and he throws me off the four wheeler and just beats the hell out of me. Right. Yeah, because I remember I was I landed in Briar, a Briar patch, and he's just kicking me and just wailing on me, and I'm bawling. He jumps back on the four wheeler and takes off. So I'm like walk all the way back to the house. I'm cut up and stuff. I don't really remember what happened after that. Like I'm sure my parents were mad. I don't remember yeah. any ramifications. But that same guy, just a few years later, murdered his grandmother. Wow. And did other things that I won't say on this podcast, but when I found that out, um, yeah, that's, that was, I felt really lucky that maybe even to be alive, you know? Yeah. Um, there's just some scary wow. stuff that happens, man. Yeah. There's some scary stuff that happens in in your life. And, uh, man. So I, I remember some stuff like that as a kid, you know, and I know things are supposed to be worse now, but I swear I've had more. I, I think things have always been a certain level of bad. And we've talked about this before. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, I, I don't know if uh, maybe the internet in some way, I know everyone hates it, you know, but I don't know if some way it shined a spotlight or, or left some kind of digital trail where we can catch some of these people that are doing some bad things. Yeah. I think that might be the case. Um, but I think there's always been bad um, people that, that I don't think it's just like, well, watch your kids these days because it's not like we were, it was when I was a kid. I remember walking home from school um, two different times. One time, this guy, um, we 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 could get let off pretty close to my house, but we could get let off a little earlier and walk. And it was it wasn't very far. I mean, maybe maybe like a half mile or something. But but I remember one time he went by and took a picture of me. He stopped his car, Ooh. and in the car he took a picture. Like, and I was probably like you know thirty yards away from him. Yeah. And I was like, well, maybe he's testing out his camera. I don't know. I was, you know, I, and I remember another time where he actually came up our road and pulled in our neighbor's driveway and he got out and he kind of walked towards me a little bit and he like took same, the picture. Same, same guy. guy, same wow. guy. Pedo. Got back in. Total yeah. Pedo. Got back pedo. in and like, you know, his gravel. So he like threw gravel everywhere and took off. So, I mean, um, dude, I've got two like that. Yeah. I, okay. I know we can't <laughs> your, just your, your story. Not that. I'm not going to say it's better. I'm not jealous of you for the story where you got beat up off the four wheeler, man, that's creepy. And if you, you know, I didn't even want to tell the photo thing. Cause that's oh, really no. nothing, but, but what else you got, man? You I'm telling you, I'm telling you, man, I was, at that's sc- probably why you like all this stuff. And maybe so I never really put it together, but we were at school one time and I was, I think maybe in first grade and we were all out on the playground. And I remember a guy pulled up in a white van and motioned us kids over. Now the 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 playground was surrounded by uh, about a five foot, seemed like about a four or five foot tall chain link fence. And this guy motioned me and a couple of my friends over there, and he said, "And I didn't I didn't put this together till years later, because we didn't go tell anybody." But he said, "You boys are in trouble. You're I need you to come with me, and I'm going to take you around to the principal. He wants to talk to you." And we actually pondered it for a minute because, you know, when you're that small, any adult is an, is an authority sure. figure. Yeah. And so I, I was like, we were, we were just thinking about it for a second. Oh, what are we in trouble for? Yeah. And then 
uh, well, one of my friends asked that, what did we do? And he said, he'll tell you when he, you don't ask the questions. I mean, he was really good yeah. at just being intimidating. And we three, we just turned and bolted and just ran back into yeah. the playground. But like years later, that, that memory crept up and I was like, oh my God. He's probably thinking, Wish I should have went with the free candy. <laughs> Why did I do the principal thing again? It never works. So I make a joke of it, but I mean, well, no, I mean, yeah, that's all you can do. <laughs> yeah. And the second story, and I've told you this one before, and I'll make it really short because I didn't, I didn't know this was, was going to turn into like eight hundred stories from me podcast. No, it's great. And I apologize awesome. if I'm boring the hell out of anybody, but I went to see a uh, a friend of mine spend the night with him, and I think I was seven or eight years old, and it was in uh, a bigger town. Which to us, to me, a bigger town is this town's population was like ten thousand at the time. But my town's population was like 120. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Almost anything's bigger. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, so I spent the night with him. The next morning, we grab our bikes. We're riding around this town. And, and, and I don't know the town like he did. Like he rode his bike around that town all the time. And so we, uh, we got an ice cream cone at uh, the Dairy Queen. And he's like, let's ride home. And I was like, okay, I'll meet you there. I'll go this way. I'm just a stupid kid. Like I didn't know where he lived. You know, it didn't occur to me. Uh, just one of many millions of stupid decisions I've made in my life. So he's just like, okay, I'll see you there. So I take off riding my bike this other direction and didn't take me long to realize, you know, I, I can't find his house. So I'm freaking out. So I'm just sitting on my bike at a stop sign, kind of crying. And I swear to God, this is so cliche and I'm going to make myself, but look, it was back in the eighties and I was a little kid, so don't judge me, but this van pulls up. It's always a freaking van, a red van pulls up and two dudes in it. And the guy's like, why are you crying? And I was like, I can't find my friend's house. And the guy was like, we know where it's at. (laughs) Yeah. You do. And so psychic. Yeah. And so yeah, I threw my they slid open the side door, threw my bike in, I get in with them. This is another thing. Like at the time I Dude, was, you're lucky. I, I feel fortunate to be sitting here with you. I've got more stories. <laughs> the, yeah. The fact that I'm sitting here uh, is a yeah, goddamn I mean, miracle. I mean, you 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 better live right from now on. Don't take anything for granted. <laughs> so as I'll never forget it, there was nothing. There was the two seats in the front of the van, driver's seat, passenger seat. And every and the rest of the van was empty except for like some some uh, uh, electrical cords and stuff, <laughs> duct tape, you know, lime shovels, not that, but really before zip ties. <laughs> and I remember them driving around talking to each other, saying, "What do you want to do?" And the other guy's like, "I don't know. This is what do you want to do? What do we do now?" And I remember sitting back there thinking, "What do you mean these guys are? What do you mean? What are they going to do?" Like. Drop me off at my friend's yeah. house. Drop yeah. me off at Dustin's house. Take me to my friend's. Yeah. So, uh, thank God, the driver eventually just pulled over and he was like, I'm letting them out. I guess that they were just uh, not ready to pull the trigger yet. You know what I mean? And hopefully they never did because I was a trial run. Definitely. He pulled me over and just opened the sliding door, let me out. And he's like, sorry, kid, we we forgot where your friend lives. And they just drove away. Yeah. And so... um. I don't remember how long it was, but my friend and his mother found me and I told him what happened and she naturally flipped out and called the cops. And I remember him at, you know, asked me what, what yeah. the van looked like and all this, but anyway, um, Jesus, yeah. I didn't know we were going to, you're, you're lucky, man. <laughs> and I've got more, but let's, I, we, like you said, that rubber band stretched for now, about a mile. I mean, that, that was all, that was all good. That's, that's a, 
Um, that's the best story you could hear that, you know, that's so, you know, at least I had a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Cause I'm it's here. Like, it's like a great, almost like a ghost story, but not a ghost story. It's really chilling. And my daughter pays for this. She pays for the, all my close calls because just a while ago, right before you got here, she called me and she was like, I'm headed to the carnival. And I was like, stay by your mom. And yeah. she's, and, and she's always like, I know, I know you know, but yeah. I, I know, I know I drive her crazy with it, but I'm just like, you never freaking know. Yeah, you, never you don't. Know. You don't. That's for sure. All right. So if people even remember what we're talking about by this point, uh, the Moore family has been murdered. And the two young ladies that had come home to uh, to stay the night with the kids, Lena and Ina Stillinger. And uh, they've been discovered and the crime scene has been destroyed. That's where we're at. Uh, the funerals for the slain Moore family and the Stillinger sisters were held in Villisca's town square on June 12, 1912. Soldiers from the National Guard were called in to block the streets and help corral the thousands in attendance. The victims' caskets were not on display, but afterwards were carried on wagons to the Villisca Cemetery for burial. The, the funeral procession was 50 carriages long. So wow. the most captivating part of this case is the suspects and they're all almost all really good suspects it's like i was when i was telling you about doing the research so i usually do i'll cover each suspect as they kind of came up on the radar Mm -hmm. and i would read about one guy and i'm like well that's him that's the guy how could it not be him and then i would move on to the next suspect and i'm like oh wait holy crap this is the guy yeah there's like four guys like this Wow. So it's anyone's game. Okay. So um, I'm ready. Okay. Let's get into the first one here. Andy Sawyer, despite there being basically no physical evidence left behind by the killer and a totally decimated crime scene, detectives set about searching for suspects. At first, basically everyone was considered a suspect. Some of the first targeted were the transients and drifters believed to be in town on the night of the murders. Andy Sawyer fit this bill. He was a loner, who had actually begun working for the Burlington Railroad on the very day of the murders. He had showed up in a brown suit with muddy shoes and his pants were wet up to his knees asking for employment. This alone is not much, but apparently his fellow crewmen had grown suspicious of his odd fascination with the Moore murders. He bought every paper with a Velisca Axe murder headline and spoke nonstop about the case. He constantly speculated on whether or not they had found the murderer and even mentioned that he was in town that night and he feared that he would become a suspect. To add gas to the fire, he also reportedly slept fully clothed with an axe by his side. He had also told the foreman's son that he knew where the killer had left town, showing him a path across the tracks and into the woods. The final straw was an incident where Sawyer was supposedly behaving oddly, uh, stooped over, rubbing his head with both hands and mumbling. When Thomas Dyer, his crew foreman, approached him to ask what was wrong, Sawyer spun around, grabbed his axe, and swung it wildly while yelling, I'll cut your goddamn heads off. So, understandably, (laughs) like you do when someone asks what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, After this incident, Dyer uh, quickly reported Sawyer to the sheriff on June 18th, eight days after the murders. Although he definitely was a strange cat and had a curiously deep fascination with the murders, there was no evidence whatsoever to tie Sawyer to the crime. So he was soon dropped 
as a suspect when officials learned that he had not been in Villisca on the night of the murders. Instead, he had been about 70 miles to the east in the town of Osceola. He had been arrested there at around 11 p.m. for vagrancy, and this pretty much provided a rock-solid alibi. Oh, okay. So he is not one of the one of the uh, suspects that I said would be really good suspect. Yeah. Obviously. Because he, wasn't, it was he wasn't bad. But he was a suspect. At first, he was a bad. At, yeah. Uh, so Frank F. Jones is our next suspect. Uh, Jones was a prominent businessman in Villisca and also a state senator. Years earlier, he had employed Joe Moore at his hardware and implement company, Jones of Villisca. In 1907, frustrated with the high work demand and long hours, Joe Moore left the company and started his own rival implement business. When he left, he took a cornerstone of Jones's business with him, the, the uh, John Deere franchise. There were also rumors of affairs. Frank Jones had a particularly beautiful, promiscuous daughter-in-law named Donna Jones. Her extramarital exploits were well known in the town because she arranged most of her rendezvous on the telephone. And this was back at the time when the telephone was physically manipulated by an operator. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So she would call, she would dial like four or whatever, and a lady would actually pull a guitar cord out of a wall and stick it over here. Yeah. And then she it, could, it was a guitar cord. It was, yeah, they were back then. And they'd say park street, four thirty two, please. Yeah, and exactly. Would, yeah. And then that woman could sit here and, and, and hear the woman yeah. say like, you know, do you still, do you still fancy a show? Wait, why am I making her British? This is Iowa. Hey, she's an immigrant. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking on the fly. So it was long rumored, although never proven, that one of these romps was with none other than Joe Moore. The two soon became bitter enemies, Frank Jones and Joe Moore, and by 1910 they would even cross the street to avoid running into each other. Seeing as how this animosity was well known throughout the town, many set their sights on Jones before the Moore's bodies were even cold. Much of the town split over these accusations, mainly along religious lines with one half being Methodists protesting Jones' innocence and the other half being fellow Presbyterians of the Moore family convinced of Jones' guilt. But no one really thought that Frank had the gusto to do something like this personally. He was 57 at this time and probably too affluent to get his hands dirty. It was agreed that if he were involved, he most likely would have hired a hitman to pull off the job. An unspecified tip led investigators to believe that Jones may have hired a career criminal and possible serial killer to murder the Moore family. And this is where we meet William Blackie Mansfield. This guy, this guy, this guy. Uh, oh, Blackie. This, yeah. <laughs> so like on the last uh, <clears throat> episode, I was talking about a slew of axe murders that that happened across the Midwest back in the early 1900s. There were so many and there's so many candidates for, there's so many that they have, there's so many murders on this side and there's so many murderers on this side that they can't, it's like draw a line from which one over here matches the murder. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, I don't know what the deal was. And I heard the NAA, they, they definitely came out. (laughs) The National Axe Association. And they were like, don't blame the axe. It's a mental health issue. And everyone was like, oh, another politician in the NAA's pocket. I'm sorry. I I set my axe on the front porch for two hours and it didn't kill nobody. 
I could tell at the beginning of that you were like, where is he going with this? I know, because you had this huge grin just staring at me the whole time. <laughs> because I, the grin meant, should I say this? Because it's incredibly <laughs> stupid, admittedly. Never stopped me from saying anything. That's right. So William Mansfield, this guy is suspected in a whole slew of murders and is likely a bona fide serial killer. If we thoroughly went over all the murders this guy is suspected of, we'd be here all night. Uh, we may devote an entire episode to this guy in the future, but I don't know. I'll keep things brief for now. Uh, basically, throughout 1911 and 1912, there was a string of axe murders across America, and many of them are thought to have possibly been committed by our suspect, William Mansfield. Among these are the murders of his wife, infant son, and in-laws in Blue Island, Illinois, and also the murders of H.C. Wayne, his wife and son, and Mrs. A.J. Burnham in Colorado Springs, the murders of Emma Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Illinois, the murders of Roland Hudson and his wife Anna in Paola, Kansas, along with a slew of unsolved axe murders all along this Southern Pacific Railroad, not to mention he has been looked at as a viable candidate for the axe man of New Orleans murders, which also took place around the same time. Oh, I thought you meant, I thought you were going to say axe man of the year <laughs> for some reason. I'm like, what? <laughs> but no, you weren't. <laughs> you earned this, William. Axe Man of the Year. It just seems like a lot of work. Oh, man, I know, right? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a fad, right? I guess, yeah. I wonder if there's fad in, serial kill, in the serial killer universe. There might be. <laughs> Fads. Yeah, there might be. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, in your 40s, you got your guys that was doing ligatures and tying ladies up. And in the 50s, it was all about the raises, you know, right across the throat. Ah, it's fickle, fickle people, serial killers. I, I, I would imagine you could research and you could find tendency, tendencies, to, you know, for the for that type of thing. Like, I can guarantee you the early 1900s, it was all, the axes were all the rage. <laughs> it's funny you put it that way. Know, You'd right? have to be in a rage. <laughs> There was also the max, uh, I'm sorry, the massacre of William Showman, his wife and three children in Ellsworth, Kansas, in October of 1911. Many, if not all, of these murders had uh, striking similarities with those in Villisca. The victims obviously were hacked to death with an axe, but also, uh, and and this is not in every. Okay, so not every single murder scene shared the exact mo, but they each had overlapping. Like this one, they covered up the mirrors, but they didn't do this. This one, you know. Okay. But they all had similarities that that overlapped in some manner. Um, And several of them, the mirrors and windows were covered. The victims' faces were covered. Even the dimly lit oil lamp, uh, minus the chimney, was was found. And, you know, I don't know. That's just, that seems like pretty startling coincidences, doesn't it? Yeah, Um, it does. The Ellsworth murder scene even had clothes heaped over the family telephone. And, and we could talk all day with a psychiatrist about what that might mean. Covering the windows and the telephone. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, Speak no evil, see no evil. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Wow. Yeah. It was a federal officer, Matthew McLaughrey, I guess. And soon after, Detective James Wilkerson and the Burns Detective Agency in Kansas City, who put together the similarities in all the murders and came to the conclusion that they were most likely committed by the same man. Uh, McLaughrey had another suspect in mind who we'll get to momentarily, but Wilkerson said he could prove that William Mansfield was in the area of each murder at the time they occurred. In 1916, he convinced a grand jury to open an investigation, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County. 
Unfortunately for Wilkerson, though, payroll records surfaced proving that Mansfield was actually in Illinois on the night of the Villisca murders. Not only was the case against him dropped, but he, Mansfield, later filed a suit against Wilkerson and uh, was rewarded over $2,000 in damages, I guess, for being falsely accused. It was Wilkerson's belief that Frank Jones had used his clout and influence to orchestrate Mansfield's release, though. To this day, in spite of links to dozens of murders, Mansfield remains only a strong suspect. Wow. I would just want to know how strong the payroll evidence is. I mean, that that's, I mean, I, I, I was talking to somebody the other day and they showed me a, a bank book from the nineties, just the nineties. And it was a loan, like a payment book and it was all handwritten still mm-hmm. like, and it showed the balance go down all, from like 15,000 all the way to zero. And it was like the size of a credit card. Really? So, you know, if everything's handwritten, <clears throat> I yeah. just don't know if, if it would be, you know, that seems like it'd be so easy to fake. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Cause you, you know, a friend that works payroll that just fills out a bunch of crap. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, how could any written document? Surely they'd have to be there'd have to be stacks, and people would have to say, "Yeah, he worked with me, you know, all month or whatever." Yeah, but I don't know. Like I just said, it it is some people's. It was some people's belief that this Frank Jones had that set up to, you know, to get Mansfield off. Uh, Another pretty good suspect is Henry Lee Moore. Now he's no relation to the Moores. Yeah. um, his instrument of choice was also an axe. It was Moore who federal agent McLaughrey suspected as the man responsible for the same slew of murders that detective Wilkerson had attributed to William Mansfield. Like I said, this gets murky because there's so many murders and so many potential Mm -hmm. murderers, but also like Mansfield, Henry Lee Moore was never definitively tied to the Villisca murders. Although he is only, uh, uh, he's also a strong suspect to this day, just a few months after uh, the murders, however, he would finally be charged and convicted of uh, murdering and chopping up his own mother and grandmother with wow. an axe. And I said, I, I misread that. I don't think it was just months after. It was it was a little while later. Uh, so, yeah, there's him. Uh, lots of axe murderers at that time. Yeah. So now I'm going to get to the guy, the most, the last and most interesting suspect, okay? This is the guy that... I think I can safely say, I don't know, it's so murky if you had to choose. And that's what's one of the good things about this case. Uh, I'm anxious to get your input after this. Okay. Uh, George Kelly was an English immigrant with a well-documented history of mental health issues. He also had a history of being a sexual deviant, peeping Tom, and a pervert. Apart from being creepy as hell, last but certainly not least, Kelly was, oddly enough, also a preacher. Since immigrating to America with his wife in 1904, Kelly had preached at Methodist churches across North Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, and Iowa. Apparently, this did not prove lucrative enough for Kelly, and he would eventually decide to switch brands, so speak, saying, and I quote, you'll starve to death working for the Methodists. It was at this point he began preaching in Presbyterian churches. He actually wasn't set to begin serving until September of 1912, but the seminary president arranged for him to service three open churches that summer. Two of these churches were in Arlington and Pilot Grove, and the third church, Villisca. He arrived in town on June 8th to give a sermon as part of the Presbyterian Church's Children's Day service the next day. Now, he arrived in town literally barely a a day before the murders. Um, 
It is believed that Reverend George Kelly, the sexual deviant, had became enthralled with Sarah Moore, her children, and the Stillinger sisters as he watched them sing, recite their speeches, and perform that evening. This theory suggests that after the service, Kelly had followed the family back home, waited for them to fall asleep, and it was he that committed the grisly murders. Some point to a depression in a bale of straw in the shed as the spot where he waited, with a knot hole conveniently providing a perfect view of the house. But like as we said before, uh, who's to say a kid didn't go out there and lay on the friggin' hay bale and, you know... Yeah, that's true. Read or something. So I mean, anyway, but, but as you said that, I visualized him doing it. I yeah. Mean, just, it, yeah. Um, very intriguing. For mm-hmm. sure. Another point that certainly doesn't help this case in the, is the fact that several uh, uh, people later came forward claiming that Kelly had been aboard the number five train that had left Velisca at 519 on the same morning of the murders. And he had allegedly mentioned to several passengers that, and I quote, there are eight dead souls back in Villisca, Iowa, butchered in their beds while they slept. Now, that is three hours before anybody else would find the bodies, right? So yeah. that's problematic. If yes. that's true, that's huge. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, suspicions grew even more when he returned to Villisca two weeks later and, posing as a Scotland Yard officer, had tried to gather information on how the investigation was going. Law enforcement grew even more concerned when Kelly's interest in the case reached an obsessive level. He began to write long, rambling letters to investigators, private detectives, local lawmen, and even relatives of the victims. It was also discovered that a young woman in Villisca, right before the murders, reported that she had caught Kelly peering into her window. Kelly was quietly investigated for some time, and law enforcement's suspicions toward him were not made public. After many meetings and much deliberation, the investigation against him was dropped. His position as a preacher made it difficult for many to accept that he could have been capable of the murders, and many dismissed his rambling letters and strange fascination with the case simply as symptoms of his mental health issues. Wow. So, yeah, the whole time you're saying that, I'm thinking of a guy, like like you said in, in what you wrote, he's just watching and, and, you know, becoming more and more obsessed. Yeah. See, oh, man, and I got to say this, this reminds me of another story. <laughs> oh, okay. Involving, I'm ready. I'm buckling up. One of the creepiest guys I ever met in my life was a traveling preacher. And okay. It, and this was not our regular church, but my parents went to a different church for whatever reason one night and they drug me along and this traveling preacher was blowing through town and he was at this church that night. He was a short little man, maybe only 40 with a thick black mustache and a jerry curl. But he was mm-hmm. a white dude. He was yeah. very, very white. And I just, I remember, at this point, I think I was like 10 or 11, but I was like so suspicious of this guy. He was really slick, right? He was just really slick. And he had like gold rings on almost every finger and this super, super nice suit. And I don't know. I just, the guy rubbed me all wrong. You know, even though I was a little kid, I was just like looking around at the other people in the church. Like, are they buying this shit? You know, like, (laughs) I can't believe this guy. And he had CDs for sale of himself singing gospel hymns. But dude, you couldn't make this up even in like a, a Saturday night live sketch. Each CD had on the cover was him, obviously, in like different poses Almost like a really, really bad uh, a glamour shot. I swear to God. 
Like one, he had like a jean jacket with the uh, collar popped and it was from behind. And he's like looking over his shoulder, smiling. I swear to God. And I remember like after the service, looking through these CDs, like, who is this guy? But he was the creepiest guy I think I've ever known. It sounds like it. Yeah. Dude getting glamour shots. Yeah. And it's then for the- my album, <laughs> I got four albums dropping this year. Um, which brings to mind that, um, I guess you could do whatever song you wanted to because there, there's no copyright laws in, in religious music, I don't think. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's, that's an how, angle. Yeah. I, I don't know. I never, I've never, I've never pondered that before. <laughs> so anyway. My next cover is going to be It Is Well In My Soul. All right. Uh, well, a church member I had, it's not so dark. So I'll lighten it up since <laughs> everything's been so dark. I know. Um, sorry. There was a song called. Uh, it was like, Jesus will work for you. But when everyone sang it together, my friends and I thought that it sounded like, Jesus will work for food. <laughs> and so we'd always sing that loud. And I remember this one time, this old lady next to us, because we every time we did it, we did it a little bit louder Yeah, every week. So I remember we did it so loud, this lady. I mean, I mean, it's 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 weird to be in church and get a go to hell look. <laughs> She meant it literally. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> if looks could kill. Um, I don't know. We're just bored, lady. I don't know. Oh, I now I see Jesus Christ standing on a street corner with a will work for food sign. Well, there's guys that look like them that have that. There was. I saw a guy just the other day. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that makes sense. So this is uh sometime after <laughs> sometime after the tragedy in Velisca tragedy that is kelly dropped out of the seminary and went off the radar he would eventually end up in winter this is ironic in winter south dakota where he found work as a shorthand reporter and also began preaching again kelly placed an ad in the omaha world herald for a girl stenographer to perform quote confidential work Hmm. Uh, when a young lady named jessamine hodgson replied kelly sent her back a letter that a judge later described as Cat, stop meowing. I'm building up here. <laughs> I'm trying to get somewhere, right? I'm trying to paint a picture. The judge described as so obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof. Doesn't that sound like a judge? Yeah, from Among- 1782. <laughs> he had a powdered wig. But yeah, it's good. It works. <laughs> Among the bizarre job requirements Kelly elaborated on in the disturbing letter was that the young lady would be required to type in the nude, which in his defense, I've heard you can bump up your words per minute from 60 to 62 just by not being inhibited by a blouse, right? No? Of course. Okay. (laughs) Horrified, Hodgson took the letter to her pastor, who then turned it over to postal authorities. They decided to send Kelly a series of dummy letters posing as her to which he responded with even creepier and more sadistic comments and requests. These lewd acts landed Kelly in jail, and he was convicted in May of 1914. Uh, He was sentenced to serve time in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, uh, but instead was transferred to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which is a mental hospital in Washington, D.C. During his time here, Kelly would continue to obsess over the murders of the Moore family, even going so far as to write the attorney general expressing fears that he may be arrested for the crime. The attorney general responded with a letter assuring Kelly that he was not a suspect. But unbeknownst to Kelly, 
His fears were actually well-founded. Back in Iowa, the list of suspects had grown, had, uh, had gone over, had been gone over, I'm sorry, many times, and they kept clearing people off, but Kelly's name kept creeping its way back into the conversation. After the case against William Mansfield collapsed, a grand jury member named Scott Smith finally exclaimed, we've got to look at that crazy preacher over in Nebraska. After an, uh, after an extensive investigation, a bench warrant finally was issued for the arrest of Reverend George Kelly on April 30th, 1917. Kelly rode the same number five train into town as he had left on five years earlier and turned himself in to Montgomery County Sheriff Bob Dunn on May 14th. Kelly was interrogated several times in the following months, but the one that finally extracted a confession started late in the afternoon of August 30th. <clears throat> uh, now, I want you to, after I read you the circumstances of this confession and how they were and how it was gathered, mm -hmm. you can tell me what you think about okay. its validity. Okay. He was brought into a room at the Logan Jail and greeted by the Attorney General, two federal agents, and the county sheriff. What followed was an epic demonstration of good cop, bad cop, with all four men taking turns pressuring, threatening, bargaining with, and breaking down the reverend. When they allowed him to return to his cell for a short breather, he was met there by two men. These two men claimed to be hardened criminals, criminals, that is, who had just arrived at the jail and told Kelly things would, quote, go much easier for him if he would just confess. In reality, the two thieves were actually a deputy sheriff from Pottawatomie County, G.W. Atkins, and a newspaper editor from Missouri Valley. At seven the next morning, after being interrogated most of the previous evening and all night long, Kelly confessed to the murders. Okay. <clears throat> so, wow. yeah. So, I, I, you know, I guess the guy's afraid, but you would think you could probably tell a newspaper editor from a hardened criminal. <laughs> he was still wearing his hat that had the uh, <laughs> the card stuck into the uh, whatever that was about. Like, Sir, could you tell me the details of the murder in which you had perpetrated? You know, you know it's like saying he's in all this... <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. He 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 might have played the part well. I mean, I'm just, who knows? Yeah, but yeah, it's creepy. I mean, is it creepy or genius? You know, who um, knows? Well, it's it's the reason why we have a lot of mis mistrials and things like that today because we're I th we're well, I don't think I know we're we're getting away from things like that. If there's anything that compromised the case, you know, they throw it out. Yeah, anything um, at all. Um, which some people get really mad. They're like, oh, we wasted a bunch of taxpayers' money. But the way that I kind of look at it is, is you just want to be right. You, you don't want any kind of inaccuracy or preconceived notion or uh, bribery or, or, you know, just a mistake to, you know, because it affects someone's life forever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you want to find the right person. I mean, obviously, you don't want to just do like they did in the old day. Like, well, I have a hunch that <laughs> Joe Davidson's the killer. And I'm going to make these facts fit. I've mentioned it before, but uh, John Mulaney has a hilarious bit about the uh, crime back in the 40s and 50s. He said, basically, if you weren't still there when the police arrived, you would get away with it. And he would be like, the, the cop would be like, Sergeant, we got blood over here. And he'd be like, mm, gross, wash it up. I'm busy working on this hunch. You know, anyway, that was terrible. I've seen me. enough TV shows to know that you never pick up the gun or the knife. Yeah. And I don't understand why you would walk in, hold it and look <laughs> and just kind of like think for a minute. Hmm. So someone's going to walk in in a second. I want to be holding this knife. That's yeah. going to look good. Yeah. 
You know? I, I remember you saying that just the other night, Jess and I watched Final Destination. Okay. So all these people, you know, after not dying on the plane, they mysteriously are dying one by one. And the cops think it's the, the boy that had the premonition. Mm-hmm. And he runs into the teacher's house as it's on fire. And she's laying there with a knife in her chest. And he picks it up. Yeah. And he stands there. I thought of you. like, yeah. and, and then he drops it and runs out of the house. Yeah. So I'm like, oh. That's just some, some rider that's taking the easy way out. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, man, I've been up all night on this screenplay. I'm just going to, oh, okay. He picked up the knife. Yeah. That'll tie things together <laughs> nicely. All right. So this, the following was taken from VelliscaMovie.com, and I found a lot of good information on here. In this confession, he claimed to have had difficulty sleeping the, uh, the night of the murder, so he went for a walk. While walking down the middle of the street, George saw a light in a house and two children, which is the Stillinger girls, getting ready for bed. He heard the Lord's voice commanding him to suffer the children and come to me. I think that's how the Lord sounds. Or am I spare the rod, spoil, spoil the child, spoil the child? Yeah, spare the axe, spoil. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In a trance-like state, he walked back uh, to the back of the house, picked up the axe, went into the kitchen door, and proceeded to murder everyone. He stayed in the house until first light, let himself out the front door, and left town. Investigators were elated, although Kelly immediately conf- uh, recanted the confession. So he stayed in the house until the sun was coming up. An axe murderer afraid of the dark. <laughs> Leave when it's at night. And we all have our cross. I, I don't think he stayed. I mean, I think he stayed there to dance around and, and enjoy what he did. Yeah. I don't think he's like, well, I'll leave, but I'm going to wait for that sun to come up. <laughs> By this time, that whole part of Iowa, and this is no longer uh, from VelliscaMovie.com. By this time, that whole part of Iowa was beyond finished waiting for justice to be served in the case of who murdered the Moors. Detective Wilkerson, still obsessed with going after Frank Jones and William Mansfield, formed an organization called the Iowa Protective Association. Uh, it was also called the Montgomery County Protective Association. It went under both names in which he raised money partly for George Kelly's defense and partly to fund his own continuing pursuit of Frank Jones and William Mansfield. Wilkerson used the organization's meetings to further accuse Jones and Mansfield, collect money, and go on long tirades of how there was a government conspiracy to frame George Kelly and let Senator Jones off scot-free. So he just had tunnel vision on those guys. Yeah. Okay, so and I know we've uh, we've been running extra long on this on this episode. No, but, we're good. It's okay, fine. Uh, the trial of Reverend George Kelly began on September fourth, nineteen seventeen. The state's case against him had four basic points: first, his mental state and sexual deviancy; second, the Reverend had supposedly sent a bloodied shirt away for cleaning the week after the murder; third, his knowledge of the murders hours before they were discovered; and fourthly. His confession. The state was mainly focused on the murder of Lena Stillinger. Since hers was the only body found disrobed, it was theorized that hers was a crime of a sexual nature. They pointed out the many accusations against Kelly, ranging from peeping Tom and windows uh, to attempting to one time convince two 13-year-old girls to pose nude for him, and also the salacious letters he had written to Jessamine Hodgson. Not looking good for the reverend's uh, personality or whatever. No. Um, although it may have been proved that the Reverend was an odd duck and more than likely a pervert, no physical evidence was presented placing him in the Moore's home or linking him to the crimes. But in defense, what evidence would be there? You know, because a hundred people trampling through like yeah. it was 
Black Friday at Walmart, what would there be left over? Anyways, uh, on September 24th, Judge Boyce turned the proceedings over to the jury, and two days after uh, of two days of deliberating, yeah, ca- uh, they came back deadlocked, eleven to one for acquittal. By this time, popular opinion sided with that of James Wilkerson, and most folks believe that it was indeed Frank Jones who had employed Williams Man- William Mansfield in the murders of the Moore family, and then used his wealth, power, and influence to escape justice. Wow. Uh, that's not even the end of it. Even members of the victim's family vouched for the reverend and proclaimed his innocence. Sarah Moore's own father, John Montgomery, and Lena and Ina's father, Joe Stillinger, even posed with Kelly and his wife for a picture to be put in the papers to show their support and belief in his innocence. And I found this picture. It's online. Uh, Kelly was put on trial again in November of 1917, and this time was acquitted of all charges. This effectively ended the investigation into the Velisca Axe murders. This, go ahead. I mean, why pose with him in a picture? Even if you think he's innocent, I mean, he's probably guilty of the other things, the, the sexual things. I know. So it's either like, is he a giant hey, piece buddy. of crap? Yeah. Or just a huge piece of crap? <laughs> yeah. And, and think about this. I mean, there's a 1% chance... Even if, you know, you just want to lowball it, that he probably did it. I mean, you're way lowballing it because, I mean, I think it's higher than that. But you're going to pose it. I mean, would that thought never cross your mind? Like, uh, just take a picture of somebody that killed my family. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's it's, it's really weird. I I wasn't going to say it, but is it the religion thing that, that, that helps that? Well, yeah, maybe people just could not reconcile their themselves with a man of God, supposedly right. being a murderer or a kitty toucher or whatever, all those yeah. other things. Maybe they, maybe they discredited everything that yeah. he was accused of. Sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I, I mean, that's just an idea. I'm not sticking to that, but uh, I mean, I'm not just going like hundred percent to that, but yeah, that's, that's just a thought that came into my mind. Like, you know, is it because of that, that they, you know, pardon this guy in the, in the court of public opinion, because I feel like what you, based on what you told me, I feel like it was almost like, almost like a campaign. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our jury techniques now are, you know, sometimes they keep them to where they can't see anything. Um, and I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about a mistrial. Um, it was a mistrial because they didn't want the jury to know that this guy was guilty for an unrelated crime, but still kind of a bad crime. So when the juror found out and mentioned something about on the stand, or I mean in a, a, a deliberation, they made it a mistrial because the judge said that will cause our jurors to say, well, he did that. He probably did this. Yeah. So, I mean, that's yeah, how careful it. they are now. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, I got into kind of a dis- kind of a disagreement about that because I said, "Yeah, I agree with that," and they were like, "Oh, kind of waste of time and taxpayer money." <laughs> I mean, I understand that part of it too, but you know, just because you're guilty of one thing doesn't make you guilty of something else. Exactly, exactly. And I think I can also safely say that the entire mindset of well, he's a pastor, so he couldn't possibly have done anything right. like that—that's been laid to rest. 
Like, look at Jim Baker for misappropriation of funds. Sure. Look at Jimmy Swaggart yeah. for sleeping around. Yeah. Look at Jim Jones for murdering 900 people. Yeah. Uh, so I think we can... And look at uh, countless Catholic priests that we won't even get into that. Oh, I mean, if you've read about Spotlight, you know, the Spotlight articles or watched the documentary. Well, not it was a movie, but I read about it after I watched it. And, and a lot of that was really accurate. Um, they thought it was a few... And it was a few hundred. <laughs> so, yeah, that's crazy. Who were being strategically moved around to avoid <laughs> prosecution or, yeah. you know, by the higher ups. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's creepy, man. So, which, which you know, I, I think of this a lot um, whenever I think about, like, priests and things like that. Um, whenever you're looking at the situation we have in our country now with some police officers making some bad choices. I mean, you can just watch the video. There's there's some of these videos, there's no other way to spin it. I mean, it's a cop kicking a guy in the head that another cop's already on top of. Right, right. Um, to me, a priest that does his job and, and helps the community and does everything, there should be no one more angry about the thing about spotlight and all that stuff than the good priest. Yeah. So I think the good cop should be more angry than all of any of us that are just civilians and we're not in that. So, um, um, that well, that's all I want to say. I well, no, I know exactly. I I feel that same way. Like the cop, they have to be upset about that. It's it's like when sure. you, when you hear of another mass shooting or or a serial killer, you're always like, oh god, oh it's a white dude. Oh great, you know. It's like when some I'm telling you, oh thank God it's not a white guy this time. But yeah. it usually is. It usually is a yeah. white guy, a yeah. crazy white guy. Sure, but yeah, that's like you want people. I want to say, please stop doing this. Yeah, because you make <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, bad. yeah, you really do and I mean, you just make everything worse just yeah. just because um you know, because your one act is amplified. Um and the guy that's been helping people for 40 years, now his his reputation is a little tarnished tarnished mm-hmm. by just somebody that doesn't, that doesn't know him. Um yeah, so yeah, and we so, can go all day on so, that. Kind someone of, gets judged off of somebody else. Really? Yeah. I had a sure. I, I had a boss one time and I'll just make this short. I just thought it was so crazy. I had a boss one time who did not like black people. And you know okay. why? Why? He and his exact words were I never I never disliked black people until one moved in next to me and he was a jerk. So one dude, wow, that is solid logic. You based your opinion off of millions of people based off one dude that lived next to you for a while. Well, to put it to put it um, another way, he does not like people whose descendants grew up in a place where the sun was more direct and it caused their skin over time to become darker <laughs> based on sun exposure. It's ridiculous. He likes people that lived in a higher uh, uh, latitude to where they had less direct sunlight, and so their skin is a lighter color. Yeah, exactly. That's the way I like to kind of he's, look at that. He's pigmentation. He's he's yeah. pigment. Uh, yeah, bias. I he don't like you bias. because you had <clears throat> thousands of ancestors from New York. Yeah, no, it's like <laughs> it's like no, don't try to use the scientific side of it because then you can no longer be racist. Now, um, <laughs> I did meet a guy one time, and and. And there's been some controversy on another podcast that both you and I listened to about um, intelligence levels among racial 
Oh yeah. Groups. Yeah. Um, but I met a guy one time that went way on the other side of that and said, there is concrete evidence that this race and this race is intellectually inferior to the, to the whites because they had a better diet and climate and society came to them earlier. And I, I just a very common sense answer. I thought, well, but what about the intelligence level of, of a, of a civilization that has to survive in the wild and not have everything provided for them? Yeah. What about the intelligence level of, of, of waking up every day and you don't just walk to a place and buy a sandwich. Right. Yeah. You have to figure out a way to, 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 you know, if you don't, you know, farm and, you know, kill all, you know, everything you need and you got to know how to skin and process, you know, process meat, not process it, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. I I get where that's murky (laughs) because Joe Rogan had a guest on who was saying kind of the same thing as you. And I don't remember what race he said there. He made, he named off a few races and some, had attributes that were better in some areas and some exactly. And, uh, and actually, you know, what's funny is, and this is something I would like to every racist person against black people to know that white people actually have far more closer DNA to Neanderthal. We have remnants of Neanderthal DNA. Black people do not. Oh, okay. So I just like to make that clear. And I am a white guy, but I don't care. You know, um, I just thought that was, I thought that was, uh, interesting when I heard that because, you know, some some white supremacist a hole somewhere would probably love it for it to be the other way around. Well, yeah, but they would they wouldn't believe the science, though. So. Probably not. Because science. They're not real big on science. Gobbledygook. Yeah. But anyway, let's get back to this, right? Excellent. I'm going to wrap this Sorry. up. No, 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 no. It's good. Sometimes you call the rubber band, and some guy, sometimes I call the rubber band. It broke. It, it broke. Bro- <laughs> broke that time. Snap. But yeah, Kelly was put on trial again uh, in 1917. He was acquitted. Uh, the citizens were completely convinced that Jones was guilty and his subsequent uh, scheming got him away with it. And the law enforcement were convinced that Detective James Wilkerson had misguided so many people that they had willingly let a killer go free. No one has ever been convicted for the grisly slangs and mutilations of Joe, Sarah, Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul Moore, along with Lena and Ina Stillinger. The idea that a cold-blooded axe murderer could simply stroll into a home chop all eight occupants to death and slip away without ever being caught is a scenario that terrifies people to this day. The small community of Villisca was forever changed, as was the state of Iowa and, in a way, the entire nation. We are left with so many more questions than answers. Were the slew of axe murders across the Midwest related and possibly carried out by the deranged Henry Lee Moore or William Mansfield, had a sly, vindictive senator hired Mansfield and then used his influence to escape justice? Or was it the small-framed, odd preacher who had arrived in town just before the murders and had left directly after? Next month marks 90 years since the murders, and at this point, it's doubtful they'll ever be solved. Uh, Unlikely, uh, but not impossible, I guess. As long as people continue to dig around and cold cases, and are fascinated with unsolved crimes, there's no telling what may happen. And until then, we'll keep asking the question, where on earth is the Velisca Axe murderer? Yeah, that's, um, I've got no strong um, opinions on who it is. I, I think it's just so long ago, and the crime scene's so, you know, ruined. I just don't feel like I could strongly 
say it's anyone, you know? Yeah. And like I said, there are, uh, there are so many good candidates that who can you, you know, you can't discredit any one of them really, not, yeah. not without a doubt. Yeah. And I don't know why I, th- I think I had a typo here because I said next month, the murders occurred technically on June in the very early morning hours of June 10th, 1912. Mm-hmm. So, um, it has not been 90 years. It's been far more than 90 years. It's oh, been yeah. like 106 years. Yeah. So yeah. I'm glad I caught that one. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's fine. That was I a didn't, complete, I didn't even uh, pick up on it. But, uh, anyway, uh, yeah. Um, what do you, how do you feel about the Reverend? How do you feel um, about Reverend Kelly? You know, I mean, it could be him. The only thing is that the jump from just, you know, fancying, uh, you know, someone way underage and being a pedophile, doesn't automatically make me, um, you know, make it jump to, uh, he's an ax murderer. Right. Now I could see if maybe this, of course we don't know the circumstances so much, but I could see it differently if, you know, maybe he was trying to sneak in and do something with someone and he was caught and he had to defend himself. But obviously none of the evidence based on the limited evidence that we have would suggest that. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And he definitely wouldn't do all the crazy covering up the mirrors. Yeah, what was that? Unless uh, you'd have to be real intelligent and say, "Well, let's just uh, let's just do a bunch of random things that make that makes it harder for them to, you know, pin it down." Yeah. But I don't. I don't know. That's that's probably putting way too much in it. That's getting away from the simplest. Um, well, you yeah. know, it's it's the bizarre state of the crime scene that almost makes me like the preacher more for it. Because oh. he was mentally disturbed. Well, that's true. That's true. And it was just a stroke of luck that they opened up the floodgates for people just to walk through yeah. the, the crime scene afterwards. Yeah. I mean, that destroyed any evidence. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Um, but I will say, kind of a kind of a deep, deeper, darker thought um, that I thought when you were first explaining this case was um, something that I thought of one night and I, I posted on social social media account that I have in a way anyone that dies like these people died, except for the one victim that probably tried to defend herself. Um, and I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but it's as good a time as any, um, in a way they die and they, they go to sleep and they're, they're like waiting in a way to wake up. They know they don't even know what happened, which is good. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's wild. That's wild to think about. Right. Yeah. So you just go to bed and you're just waiting Wow. In a way. That's know. deep, man. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so. Um, this this is our 12th episode. That's right. Of Where on Earth Is. Um, do you want to talk about it now or do a do a teaser later? Uh, yeah. It's up to I you. Mean, we can do about it. We, we can talk about it now. Um, we're, we're wanting to change the format. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've covered every true crime, true crime cl- case that's ever happened ever in 12 episodes yeah no, that's- <laughs> no. um we we had this idea to do this format but then um as we got to talking about it more we wanted to do more so having where on earth is um we kind of limit ourselves on on uh you know content right so the idea and i'll keep going if you don't care no um, go ahead go ahead because i've got it at the tip of my tongue and that happens rarely. <laughs> the idea is to come up with a random podcast name and that way we can do random things. So we're not tied to anything. 
Um, sure, we'll still do tr- true crime. I love true crime, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, some history, science, um, and and beyond any anything any you know uh, anything that we just kind of think would make for a good episode. Um, should we say the title? If you want to, we ju- we wanted to have Go a ahead. F- format where we were not limited because uh, you know, and and if anyone's been following us since episode one. Uh, I feel like we've been learning as we went along. Sure. And it took me, it took me half a dozen episodes to feel comfortable because we're sitting here. We've, we've got all this equipment between us. We have these condenser mics in our face and we have the the headphones on and we're just kind of like looking at each other from across, you know, this table. And mm-hmm. it, it can, even though we've been friends for almost 20 years, it can be a little odd to start to converse sure. that way. Yeah. Uh, but as we, as we got what I would say is better, and more comfortable with it, uh, we immediately talk, started talking about. Well, let's broaden our horizons here. Let's uh, we we literally want to talk about anything that pops into our heads. Um, so, like Ivan said, we will keep we will go back to uh, true crime from from here, from here and there. And thanks for helping me um, decide that this is a good move on the axe murderer case. <laughs> so, I, you know, it, it makes me think. Yeah, maybe not every week we're talking about how some people died. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes we could maybe have a happy episode. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, probably, you can't do that with true crime. Uh, well, uh, it it will always be, I would say, probably somewhat mysterious every episode. And, yeah. And um, so I don't think it'll ever be happy. Well, today we're talking about sunshine and butterflies <laughs> and why we like them. <laughs> so yeah, no, we won't do that. We won't go there. Well, no, I'll, the 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 uh, the name of the the new podcast or the new format was your brainchild. So I'll let you go ahead. Oh and well, it's 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 only because if you want if you want to do a podcast and you think of the perfect name, yes, then you Google it, yes, and someone's already taken yes. it. We had probably 10 or 15 names oh my God. Yeah. that were already taken. When one, we already made a logo for it and everything. Yeah. And then there was one kind of like it. So we don't want to do that. But this name for good reason, probably is not taken. <laughs> well, my favorite was not taken by another podcast. Remember it was keep your fringe close. Oh yeah. yeah fringe yeah. being yeah. like we would be talking about fringe topics, but there's actually a freaking pant company. Fringe, oh, keep your fringe yeah. close pants. Yeah. And plus it's, it's almost like the TV show fringe and um, I like fringe science. I do, I, but I'm more on the side of like science. That's not fringe, right? More like, um, um, physics and things like, or not physics, like uh, string theory and things like that. Okay. Uh, theoretical stuff. So yeah. it's not, that's not really fringe. Fringe would be like, um, more like aliens and stuff, which I like that. Well, I like those things too. Um, but anyway, it's called the dawn of mantis. Dun, dun, dun. And it's only because we've always had these jokes where we've um, said mantis like, um, you know, um, what's one that we had? I can't think of one right now. Oh, it was man. always like um, so anything with man, we change it to mantis. And right. I don't know why. No, I don't know why. We just laughed and, and, and thought it was the funniest thing. So um, this next format, we're going to we're kind of in a planning stage. We're going to have some segments where we have where we do the same thing every week, at least two or three different things. And then it's going to be a little back and forth, a paragraph, a piece about the whatever we're talking about. And then we're going to, uh, you know, elaborate on that. So that's that's what we're looking at. Um, so that was the little teaser of it. And exactly. my idea for this one is to have a website from day one done and started and ready so we can reference things on the website. Very cool. 
So I'm excited. That's what we're looking at. So we'll take a few weeks off and then be back um, with uh, season two, but uh, new format, Dawn of Mantis. Um, Random name, random podcast. That's kind of the way I want to look at it. And thanks to everyone who has listened to any of these. Uh, Don't forget to to like, give us a five star or a positive review because that helps. And and just thank you for listening. This is just fun and uh, we like doing it. Okay. Well, signing off for now. We'll see you on season two.